book of Ezra, and we're calling it Rebuilding from Ruins. Rebuilding from Ruins. When I was in high school, I had this New York Yankees fitted hat, and I loved that hat. It fit my head perfectly. Uh, I wore it all the time. I loved that hat. Oh, we went to camp one summer, and I don't remember how this all happened. I don't remember all the details, but I know that I let a friend of mine borrow my hat, and he wore it uh, that afternoon at the water slides, on the water slides all afternoon, and he ruined my favorite hat. Now, he was my best friend, and so it didn't even come close to ruining our friendship. It's, it's a hat, right? Uh, but what happened in that it was an interesting experience in that this was something I valued, right? This was something that I placed value in and it got ruined. And because something I valued got ruined, I felt a sense of loss. Now, is it a significant loss compared to others in life? No. But I can remember that sense of loss because something in my life that I valued was ruined. And I I would go out as far as to say that uh, you've experienced that to some level, right? That every one of us have uh, had something in our lives that we have placed value on, and it got ruined. And because it got ruined, we have felt that sense of loss. Now, maybe it was something as unimportant as a hat, and you know that, that sense of loss only lasted as long as it took you to go out and buy a new hat. But sometimes that sense of loss is attached to something of much greater value, like a relationship, right, that got ruined. And uh, something maybe as important as, uh, you know, a a dream. We're going to talk about dreams today. You had this dream, you had this vision of what life was going to be like, and it got ruined, and you felt a sense of loss. We are going to be starting this series in the Old Testament book of Ezra, This morning, and we're going to be focusing on this question throughout the entire series over the next several weeks. Can God rebuild what's been ruined in your life? We're going to explore that question, whatever it is, whatever has been ruined in your life that caused you a sense of loss because you placed value on it. Can God rebuild what's been ruined in our lives? We're going to talk about that question over the next several weeks. And I'm going to ask if you would join me in the book of Ezra. Ezra is in the Old Testament. It might not be a book that you've ever read. Maybe you didn't even know it was in the Bible. But Ezra is one of the books that is in a collection of books called the historical books. So you have the book of Genesis, which tells the story of the beginnings, right? The beginning of creation. Uh, Where did we come from? Uh, the beginning of uh, God's people, where did they come from? You have the book of Exodus, which tells the story of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt and then establishing a uh, government with them and establishing laws through, uh, through Moses, right? You have that story. And then those laws are spelled out in uh, Numbers and, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And then we have this collection of books that records for us the history of God's people, the history of the Jewish people. And there are books like 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then we have these books, this collection of books, Ezra. 
and Nehemiah. They actually were at one point one book that got split into two parts. But Ezra is one of those books that records the history of the Jewish people. And we're going to be jumping into uh, the year 536 B.C. The historical setting of this book takes place when Cyrus the Great overthrows Babylon. That's the point in history in which we are jumping into. Now, just for those of you who don't know much about ancient history, Babylon uh, had already overthrown uh, Israel and had destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, uh, destroyed the, the walls, just burned everything to the ground 70 years prior. And now here we are jumping into 536 B.C. And if you could have seen Jerusalem at that time in that year, what you would have seen was a, a pile of rubble. You would have seen a city that was desolated, a, a city that had been completely ruined, uh, houses burned. This was a place where people died. This was a place where people were taken into captivity. You would have seen in that particular year just an absolute ruined mess. Now, if you were living in Babylon in the year 536 B.C., and let's say you're someone with Jewish heritage and you are dreaming, right? As a, as a family, you're dreaming of the possibility of living a life of freedom back in your homeland. And wouldn't that be amazing if we could live in our, in our own land again and you're dreaming of that? Well, the city of Jerusalem uh, would not have been part of your dream, at least not that year. That dream got ruined 70 years ago. I asked you to think about maybe something of value in your life that got ruined, but I want to be a little more specific this morning and talk about the possibility that there's been a dream in your life that got ruined. Has there ever been a dream in your life that got ruined? Maybe you, maybe you got uh, this dream in your mind at some point in the past. I'm gonna, one day I'm going to get married, and I'm going to have children and grandchildren, and we're going to have this really strong family and we're going to do lots of amazing things together, and we're going to gather around uh, the, this big table and have all these amazing meals, and it's just going to be a life of blessing. And then at some point in your life, it was like Babylon rolled into town and just ruined some part of that dream. Maybe you dreamed of a particular career. I'm going to do this when I grow up. You're still stuck in a job you don't even like. Maybe you dreamed of accomplishing something by a certain age. You know, by the age of 30, by the age of 40, this is what I want to have accomplished. And now you're at a point in life where you're kind of wondering, am I going to accomplish anything of value or significance before I even die? Maybe you dreamed of traveling around the country. We're going to sell everything in retirement. We're going to buy an RV and we're going to travel the country. We're going to see all these amazing things together. But instead, you're raising your grandkids, or you're still working in order to pay for health insurance. You can't quit. Or maybe that person that you had dreamed about taking that cross-country trip with in your retirement died. If you had a dream at some point in your life that now looks like the ruins of Jerusalem, listen, I've got some really 
great news. God has the power to rebuild ruined dreams into even stronger futures. God has the power to rebuild ruined dreams into stronger futures. And this morning, I want to talk to you about how that is possible, about how God can do that with your ruined dreams, turn them into and rebuild them into an even stronger future. Ezra chapter 1 gives us some insight into how that's possible. But before we look at it, I want you to do this for me. I want you to just take both your hands and put them straight out. Don't hit the person in front of you. That'll be rude. Don't do that. But put your hands straight out as best you can and hold your fist as tight as you possibly can. Now I want you to do this. That's what's going to be required of you. And if you really want God to rebuild your ruined dreams into a stronger future, you've got to be willing to take whatever it is you're holding on to tightly and let go of it. And we're going to see that as we walk through each one of these points this morning. Here's the first thing that we see in Ezra chapter 1. If you want God to rebuild your ruined dreams into a stronger future, the first thing you've got to wrestle with and come to terms with is you've got to stop pretending you're in charge. Write it down somewhere. Take some notes, if you will, this morning. You've got to stop pretending that you are in charge. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first year of King Sarius of Persia. Well, he's got to be the guy in charge, right? He's the king. He's the king of the known world at that time. He's got to be the guy in charge. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. And God stirred in the heart of Cyrus. Just pause on that. Let me repeat it. Listen carefully. God stirred in the heart of Cyrus. To do what? To put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. Well, here's the proclamation. This is the law that Cyrus, Cyrus the Great wrote. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, a secular historian recording these events or uh, reviewing what had taken place in the year 536 B.C. would not have viewed what you just read as uh, God's involvement, as something that God was orchestrating. In fact, archaeologists have discovered what's known as the Cyrus Cylinder. They discovered this in the late 1800s. So it's this clay cylinder that has etchings on it. And those etchings are very similar proclamations to what you just read. Written to and about other people groups with other religious backgrounds about other religious temples. 
This wasn't just unique to the Jewish people. Cyrus the Great did this for a number of people groups. Now, what's interesting about that is that Cyrus actually changed the pattern in which people were conquered. Up until Cyrus, there was this, there was this pattern where uh, an empire would rise up, and they would just destroy everything and conquer people, and they put them into exile and, and kill a bunch of people and, and make them become whatever nation they were. But Cyrus the Great comes along, and he's got a whole different way of conquering nations, and he gives people freedom to go back to their homeland. He gives people religious freedom and helps rebuild their religious temples. He completely changed the way things were done. And from a secular point of view, when it comes to history, he just looks like a brilliant politician, which arguably he was. But the writer of Ezra has a biblical worldview. And the writer of Ezra, through his biblical worldview, writes this, The Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred in the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus thought he was in control. No, God was in charge. Everything that is happening in, the, in this story is God working, God orchestrating, God working in people's hearts and lives. Proverbs 21.1 is a verse that has been so profound in my life for so many years. I can remember being at a conference one year and, and hearing a sermon, and I was probably still a teenager at the time when I heard this particular sermon on Proverbs 21.1. It just impacted my heart in such a profound way about my biblical worldview. This is what it says. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he chooses. You might think you're in charge because you're the king. No, no, God's in charge. Romans 13 verse 1 reminds the believer, Paul reminds the believer that every one of us as a follower of Jesus should Submit to the governing authorities because there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities exist because God has established them. Cyrus thought he was in control. You see, God had already declared what was going to happen. And God had already declared when it was going to happen. He'd already said, you remember when we were uh, studying Habakkuk, and Habakkuk was praying, God, you need to step in and do something. These people are terrible. We need a revival. And God said, I am doing something. I'm raising up Babylon to come in and discipline my people. Well, that's not really what I had in mind, but okay, and that's what God did. But God also said this. He told uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, which we'll look at in just a minute, he said, but I also have a plan in place that 70 years later, I'm going to raise up another nation that will punish Babylon and give them the opportunity to come back to their homeland. God already had a specific timeline in this plan. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in control. No, God was in charge. Cyrus thought he was in control. No, God was in charge. If you go all the way back to the time of Moses, you know, the Pharaoh at that time thought he was in control. And yet, when we get to Romans, we see it very clearly laid out that, no, God says he raised Pharaoh up for that very purpose, to demonstrate his, his glory and his power. God's in charge, and he will always accomplish his purposes. He will always accomplish his plans, and he will use whomever he chooses to use, even unlikely people. 
I have uh, this sermon planned for November the 8th. I have this, this series already laid out, and on November the 8th, the title of the sermon that day is this, Is Our Country Ruined? Now, you understand the timing of that sermon, right? Election week, and no matter what happens in this election, about half our country is going to look at the result look at the candidate who won and the candidate who lost, and their conclusion will be, that's it, our country's ruined, right? About half and half are going to see the same event, and they're going to conclude that our country is ruined. But when you look at events through a biblical worldview instead of a secular worldview, you can, you can clearly see that whoever wins the election this year God is ultimately the one who is in charge, and we'll talk more about that in November. But I want you to take this biblical worldview from the global stage, whether we're talking about kings and princes, or we're talking about uh, leaders of, of nations in today's world. You know, God raises up leaders and he brings them down. Take that biblical worldview from the global stage, and we're going to focus it this morning on your own life. If you want God to rebuild your ruined dream, you've got to first stop pretending that you're in charge. You're not in charge as much as you think over your life or over your dreams. You may be tempted to think that, you may be tempted to think, yes, I'm in charge of my own destiny, right? You hear that in our culture. But then you get called into your boss's office and you're told, listen, I'm really sorry, our company's restructuring. You got two choices. You can go look for another job or you can move to another city. Well, you didn't wake up that morning intending for that to be your dream. You may think that you are in control and then you have a baby, and you find out real quick, real quick, uh, who's in control and who's in charge, especially when it comes time. Man, I just, I just want to sleep. Will you please, will you please just let me sleep through the night? You're not in charge of that sleep pattern anymore, are you? You may think that you are in control, that you are in charge, and then a worldwide virus hits and just impacts the daily function of our lives in ways that we don't like, in ways that we would not choose to live our lives. You think you're in control of your life and, and of the dreams of your life, and then you get a, a phone call in the middle of the night that someone that you love has been in an accident. And like that, your whole world has changed. Our, our family was preparing for Thanksgiving dinner one year, like many families, and uh, we found out that week that my mom had cancer, that she needed emergency surgery, and that radically changed, not only that Thanksgiving, but you know, we had a plan, right? We're going to sit down, we're going to have this amazing meal, mom's going to cook this meal, and then on Saturday, we're going to go get our Christmas tree, none of that. Angie and I never imagined that we were going to find ourselves in, in Pittsburgh a few days after Faith was born. We never imagined that her birth would change the trajectory of our lives the way it did. We may think we're in control 
We may think we are in control of our lives and of our dreams, but in reality, what we actually have control over is who we will choose to trust when our dreams get ruined. That's what we have control over. Who are you going to trust when your life, when your dream gets ruined? If you want God to rebuild your ruined dreams into a stronger future, you've got to come to terms with the fact that you are not in charge. You've got to be willing to let go. Here's the next step. Once you let go and you come to terms with the fact that you're not really in charge, now you can start to trust the one who is. And the next step is this. you got to start trusting that God will always keep his promises and always fulfill his purposes. In Ezra, again, back to Ezra chapter 1. In verse 1, we see that the Lord fulfilled this, this prophecy that he had given through Jeremiah. So what we just read about what Cyrus did as God moved in his heart to do it, it had already been uh, proclaimed, it had already been decided that this was going to happen. God had already revealed it to the prophet Jeremiah, not just 70 years in the past. Even beyond that, Jeremiah had been, been telling people for years that this is what was going to happen. Hold your finger in Ezra, if you would, and just jump over to Jeremiah chapter 25. I just want you to see what God revealed through the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to go to chapter 25. Look at verse 11. This is what, what God already said was going to happen. Generations before it did. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon. Look, how many years? What's it say? It says 70 years. He already said how long it was going to be. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon, i.e., Cyrus the Great, and his people for their sins. Now, I'm going to do something for you. Okay, watch. Hold your finger there. Flip back to Ezra. Look at this. In verse 7, not only did Cyrus the Great issue this proclamation, but he also issued a memorandum, which is curious. It's going to pop up later in our story, but he issues this memorandum to go along with, in addition to the proclamation, that all of the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the Jewish temple when he destroyed Jerusalem... And, and taken off to his treasury, that they were to be returned. What's well, an interesting memorandum. Think about uh, what would motivate someone to do that. Number one, uh, Babylon uh, had taken these, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had taken these things, put them in the treasury. How would Cyrus even know that they're there and who they belong to? Like, how would that even be on his radar? And secondly, even if he does... Uh, and, and there's gold and silver and these things in his treasury, what would motivate him to say, you know what, take all that stuff, that gold and silver, all that valuable stuff, take it out of the treasury and send that back to Jerusalem as well? What would motivate his heart to do that? He stirred, God stirred in the heart of Cyrus. Go to chapter 28 of Jeremiah. This was already something that God said was going to happen. Jeremiah 28, verse 3, God says, I will bring back 
Within two years, I will bring back all the temple treasures that King Nebuchadnezzar carried off to Babylon. Who's in charge? God's in charge. Who keeps his promises? Who always fulfills his purposes? God does. The reason that Jerusalem laid in ruins was because God's people refused to obey him. They refused to put God first. And God had been telling them through prophets like Jeremiah for years to repent. And they wouldn't listen. But God's plan of discipline also included the promise of return and renewal and rebuilding after 70 years. And God kept that promise. Because God always does. I don't know what your dream might have been that fell apart and was ruined. But I want you to think about what it, what it is, what it was, and I want to put this verse in its context with you. What did God say about your ruined dream? Hold your finger in Ezra. Go with me to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Take your ruined dream, whatever it is, and I want you to move it into the context of what we are about to read. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 28. We know that God causes everything. Does that include your ruined dream? It absolutely does. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called, don't miss this, according to whose purpose? God's purpose. For who? For the ones who love him. Now, just to pause here and say this, that verse is not intended uh, to be one of these verses where you apply to your heartache and your sorrow and say, you know what? Get over it. God's got a reason. God's got a purpose. Suck it up, buttercup, and move on. That's not the harder tenor of this verse at all. In fact, earlier in verse 22, we're, we're, we're told that all of creation is groaning because of the, the world that we live in is broken by sin. Everything is distorted by sin. And all of creation is groaning for Jesus to come back and restore everything. It's not that uh, we're supposed to take uh, a look at verse 28 and say, you know what, just get over it, move on with your life. Rather, this verse is a faith challenge. It's a challenge to trust God. Even when you don't like what's happening, it's a challenge to trust God. Even when you don't understand what's happening, trust that he's got a purpose that maybe you don't agree with, that maybe you don't really fully understand, and certainly maybe don't, don't like, but you're trusting that God has a good purpose that he is somehow working out. The faith challenge. And one of the incredible examples that Paul gives is in verse 32. He says this, Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Skip down to verse 34. Who condemns us? No one condemns us. Why? For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. The disciples didn't want Jesus to die. They didn't like it. They didn't understand it at the time. 
And yet God used the worst thing that could possibly happen to make it possible for sinners like you and me to be forgiven, rescued from hell, and given eternal life. God had a purpose in what looked like this this devastating, ugly, unfair, terrible thing, the worst thing that could happen. Jesus, innocent, perfect. Why is he on the cross? And yet that's what God used to rescue sinners like you and me. You want God to rebuild your ruined dreams into a stronger future. Stop pretending you're in charge and start trusting God to keep his promises and fulfill his purposes. And here's the third thing. And this one's hard, right? So we're holding on to these things. We're, we're letting go. The third thing is this. You've got to be willing to wait on God's timing. You've got to be willing to wait on God's timing. Go to verse 5 back in Ezra. God stirred in the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. He stirred in the heart of Cyrus. He stirred in the hearts of his people. So this event is happening. This is pretty exciting. But why did it take 70 years? I mean, that's a long time to wait for a dream to be rebuilt. What was God doing over 70 years? One of the things he was doing was working in the hearts of his people. Do you get what's being asked of them? They've They've got a life that's been built in Babylon, right? They've got jobs and and homes and a rhythm to their life. And now they're being asked, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave all that behind and go back to a pile of rubble and start from scratch. What? Why would I do that? Because God was moving in the hearts of his people. 70 years ago, they wouldn't have done that. God was working in the life of Daniel. Now, this is really fascinating if you understand how the different stories overlay one another from uh, biblical history. But in the background of this story is the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of uh, the exiles when he was a young man uh, out of Jerusalem to Babylon. And God used him to make an impact in Nebuchadnezzar's life in the kingdom of Babylon, and then God continued to use him in the Persian Empire to make an impact in the life of Cyrus as well. It's it's an incredible story that's happening in the background, in the the global stage stuff that God was working on through Daniel. And all those things impacted what God wanted to do for Israel. God was working in the life of Ezra, and Haggai, and Nehemiah, and Habakkuk. These are the leaders that God raised up and worked in their lives, worked in their hearts, so at the right time, they were in the right place in order to offer the leadership needed to rebuild. Those guys didn't exist. Those leaders weren't around uh, 70 years ago. Their leaders were terrible. Gotta wait on God's timing, even if it seems... Like a long way off. I don't, I don't know how many people you know personally that uh, wind up ending up in the career that they dreamed they were one day going to do or that they uh, even went to school for. Right? Uh, statistics say 
that uh, it's about 25% of people on average that they go to school for something that they actually end up being in that career that they went to school for. 25% is pretty low considering the amount of money and effort that we put in uh, to secondary education. And maybe, I'm sure you probably know people, I do, that they, they had a dream and they chased that dream and they accomplished it and they're doing exactly what they always thought they would be. But I think I know more people that uh, their story is different than that, that uh, the people, uh, they, they thought they were going to do one thing, and then they wound up for different reasons uh, doing something completely different in life. I know for me personally, full-time ministry is not what I dreamed about doing in high school. But God used certain events in my life that were pretty big deal type events, like my mom getting cancer, like my, mom, my dad having a heart attack. God used these major events in my life uh, to, eva- to force me to evaluate what really matters in life. And as I started to evaluate what really matters in life, God moved in my heart to start asking the deeper consideration type questions of, okay, what is God's purpose for my life? What's God's call really on my life? And God moved in my heart, and he used certain events in my life to get me to that place where I was asking those types of questions. And I can also remember when I, when I did surrender that call, I'm like, man, I am, I am all in, Lord, let's do this. Uh, I want a full-time ministry right now. And that's not how it works. And I, I, I was a part-time youth pastor for about three years. I, uh, during that time, I had a full-time job in security. I had a, uh, then a full-time job in uh, family service work for a little while. Right, so for like three years, and I, I interviewed. There was uh, two times when I interviewed for full-time pastoral positions in our area. And uh, was offered the job both times. But as Angie and I prayed about it, we both just felt God pressing on our hearts the answer, no. This is not where I want you. You need to wait. You don't want to wait. You need to wait. As we waited for God to open up the right opportunity, God did. I mean, I look back now, you know, it's 20 years later, I look back now and I can see God orchestrating all the different pieces that needed to happen at just the right time. At just the right time, the opportunity opened up, and, and we felt that this was the right fit at Grace Fellowship. And we look back now, and, you know, we can see that God knew what he was doing. It, it's worked out well. If you want God to rebuild your ruined dreams into a stronger future, stop pretending you're in charge. Start trusting that God keeps his promises, that God fulfills his purposes, Be willing to wait on his timing. And here's here's the last one, maybe the hardest for some of you. You've got to be willing to make God's dream your dream. You've got to be willing to make God's dream your dream. If you go back to verses 5 and 6, think about this again. God stirred in the hearts of these people, the priests, the Levites, these leaders, to go rebuild in, in, in Jerusalem. Now, not everybody went, right? You understand, this is like a small group of people that said, yeah, we need to go do this. Now, there were people who gave financial support. They participated in that way. But you understand, in order for the dream of Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt, someone's got to go and make that opportunity a reality. 
God moved in their hearts of what they needed to do, but they chose to act. They chose to make God's dream their dream. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12, or 12 and 13, listen to what Paul writes to believers. He says, Dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he doesn't say work for your salvation. Right? Paul's already laid out the fact that we don't work for our salvation. We don't earn it. It's not our good works that make us right with God. It's through faith in God's gift of grace, faith in Christ alone and his sacrifice on the cross to forgive us, to make us right with God, to give us eternal life. Jesus did it all. So when he talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's the idea of, of continuing to uh, live out your salvation with, uh, with the idea of great respect for God. That's the idea of fear. Uh, reverence for God. It's the idea of uh, taking your faith life seriously. It's not a joke. It's not something that you should treat casually. We should take our faith life seriously. And then he says this, for it is God who works in you. God initiates, God places, moves on a person's heart, gives a person a dream. Right? God starts, God initiates, God works in you to do something. Now it's your responsibility to do what? God is the one who works in you to will and to act. God's dream he impresses it on your heart. Now you've got the decision to make to will, to willfully choose to act on God's dream. And listen to the last part of that verse. God works in you to will and to act, to do what he's calling you to do according to his good purpose. It's his purpose. It's his dream, not yours. God's got a purpose. God's got a plan. God's got a dream and it's our responsibility to align our lives with his dream, with his plan, with his purpose. It's not God's responsibility to make your dreams come true. Now, that's not what our culture uh, wants us to believe. All your dreams can come true. Bah, 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 bah. This is very countercultural. But God's got a purpose and a plan, and it's not his responsibility to make your dreams come true. It's our responsibility to align our lives in cooperation with God's dream. Here's what that looks like just in, in practical terms. Students in, in high school, and maybe you're taking a break uh, before you go on to the next thing, whatever. Students, when you are looking at a future career, it's very common for students to be asked, what are your dreams? What do you want to dream to do or be when you grow up, right? When you are looking at a future career, make God's dream your dream. Who knows better what you should be doing with your life than the one who's got a plan and purpose for your life? We have this conversation, we've been having this conversation with our children since they were young, and we're having it right now. Uh, you know, we've got one in college, she's pursuing what God's laid on her heart, uh, or, or we've got another one that is moving in that direction, trying to figure out what God wants him to do. We've, we're having this conversation right now that one of our children 
uh, has a dream uh, to be an American ninja warrior. And so, so our conversation is this. Is that God's dream? Is that your dream? We need to make sure that we're making God's dream our dream. Because here's the deal. If you do what God has designed you to do, if you pursue what God has laid out for your life and his purpose for your life, you know how amazing uh, your, your career path is going to be? And I'm not saying it's not going to be challenging or hard. Life is challenging and hard. But there'll be fulfillment. There'll be satisfaction. I can look back now, 20 years ago, and I'm pretty confident that if I would have chosen the path of my dream instead of God's dream, my life would be a wreck. I'm pretty confident in that. When you're looking at retirement, those retirement years, you know, I'm closer to that end than the other end at this point in my life. When you're looking at retirement years, make God's dream your dream. Because maybe God has something even more significant and of greater value that he wants to do in your life than just to live the good life in retirement. I want you to think about that painful experience of whatever that was, that dream that got ruined. Think about that painful experience and understand that God has the power to use that painful experience to build an even stronger future in your life. Because trials are the things that uh, test our faith. They strengthen our endurance. They strengthen our character. Uh, trials are the things that give us a greater reservoir of compassion towards others who are hurting. There's so many amazing things that God uses and rebuilds in our ruined dreams to give us a stronger future. If we're willing to stop pretending we're in charge, trusting that God will always keep his promises and fulfill his purpose, if we're willing to wait on his timing, and if we're willing to make God's dream our dream. I'm going to leave this question, this challenge. Which one of those four, which one of those four do you want to ask God to strengthen in your heart, in your life this week? Maybe all four of those, you're just, you're killing it on all four, right? You're like super person. Maybe, probably not. It's most likely that there's at least one of those four that you're like, yeah, that one. God, I need you to strengthen that one in my heart this week, today. Which one would it be? Maybe it's more than one, but would you start with one? Would you start today and just ask God, Lord, this is, this is something that I fall short in, and I'm asking you to strengthen this in my heart, in my life this week. So that when my dreams get ruined, uh, that, uh, that I look to you to rebuild them into an even stronger future.